Hey, this is Boke Narvar, and this is the Details Podcast, episode number six. With me, as always, my co-host, Andre Tomic. Andre, what's going on? Uh, nothing, Boke. What's going on with you? Come on, man. Give me something, man. You can't say nothing. <laughs> uh, okay, so we, we should talk about the weather. Okay. Which is quite pleasant here in Slovenia at the moment. So Great. It's quite pleasant here in Barcelona also. So, see, we got something in common already. Great start of the podcast. <laughs> Um, all right, but seriously, I don't want to waste too much time uh, on the weather. No offense, because we have a really interesting guest waiting this week. Um, you know, we always try to get the, the 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 most interesting guest we can get on the podcast to talk about to talk to us about different things from different areas. And uh, uh, this week, we're going to talk to a guy that I've been um, following for a while, um, and that I really wanted to talk to for a long time. And uh, uh, you know, he gladly accepted. We finally found a good day to talk. And, and today we're going to talk to Matt Taylor, who is a British astrophysicist uh, and is a project scientist on the Rosetta mission for European Space Agency. Um, for those of you who don't know, he's, uh, he's best known for his involvement in the landing of Comet, uh, of landing on Comet Churyumov-Gerasimenko um, by the Rosetta mission. Uh, which was uh, which made a huge huge uh, splash in the news in the last fall. Um, they were able to uh, land a, f- a lander on the on the on the on the comet, which is called Philae. We're going to ask him all, all about that, uh, and that's actually the first spacecraft to ever land on a comet. Uh, and so it's a it's a really uh, great pleasure for us to have him on the podcast to talk to him about this mission and about his experiences and about what can we expect in the future. So. I'm really interesting about that. Um, Andrzej, where can people uh, listen to our podcast? How can people find us? And so on and so on. Uh, yeah, the podcast is on the, the website. is the detailspodcast.com. And we're also in iTunes. So if you listen to us there, if you can leave a review, that'd be great because more people can then find the show. Yep. Thank you. Uh, thank you for all of you who are listening and who are helping us with uh, sharing uh, this podcast uh, to, to other people who maybe don't know about it. So... We really super appreciate it. Um, Andrzej, uh, if we don't have anything else, I'm pretty sure Matt is ready, so um, let's start this thing. Okay, so we have Matt Taylor uh, here joining us today, a British astrophysicist, best known for his involvement in the landing uh, on the comet Chiryumo-Garishimenko by the Rosetta mission, Uh, extremely, extremely exciting mission. Um, We are thrilled to have you on the Details Podcast. Matt, thank you so much for taking your time and joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. It's taken a while for me to actually find a time for you guys to also uh, catch up with me. So this is good to finally get this done because we've been talking about it for a good number of weeks, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have. But, uh, but it's totally fine. I know you're, you're busy and you have a busy schedule. Uh, I, can, I can only imagine it has to be a pretty crazy year for you uh, overall. But um, as the beginning, we always give a, a chance to, uh, to our guests to maybe introduce themselves to the listeners who don't really know a lot about the guest that we're talking to, uh, maybe in, in a few sentences, um, you know, how did you get involved uh, in, in Rosetta Mission and how did you become and how do you do today, the things you do today, how did you get to the point in your life, in your career that you're now? Uh, okay, I am the Rosetta Project Scientist. That basically means I am the person who tries to uh, enforce the science for that mission. This this is a mission that's uh, rendezvoused with the comet, has deployed the land of Philae to the surface of the comet. And my job as project scientist is to uh, liaise with all of the scientists that uh, have the instruments on the, space, uh, on the spacecraft, uh, a number of experts in the field, to make sure that the science that we want to do with the mission gets done and that I basically have to discuss and, and, and uh, interact with the operations people to make sure that this this does get done. And that's a difficult thing to do for an, an unknown entity, as we have 
like as as a comet it's quite a it's not a trivial thing to fly around a comet as we're finding uh day in day out uh in terms of where i come from i um did a PhD in uh, plasma physics or space plasma physics in around 2000. I did some postdoctoral uh, work in both uh, the UK and the US. I worked in Mullard Space Science Laboratory in Surrey on uh, a mission called Cluster, which is still flying around the Earth at the moment. It investigates how the solar wind, the outer atmosphere of the sun, interacts with the Earth's magnetic field, ultimately how auroras are uh, formed. But the, it's the physics behind that that that, that mission in, uh, is focusing on. And I worked on uh, a number of uh, aspects of that mission. I also worked in the U.S. in Los Alamos, uh, the, the 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 weapons lab there. But I was working again on on cluster there. There were some researchers looking at that that kind of science. Then I came back to the U.K. and then ultimately got a job in ESA in 2005, working on clusters of, uh, in the project science area. And two years ago, I was offered the opportunity to work on Rosetta, and that's basically a potted history of my life up to now. <laughs> Interesting. What does it mean? Like you got the opportunity to work on Rosetta? Is that like a dirty dozen thing? Just some guy shows up at your door and asks you, or how does that work? Yeah, I'm like I'm like the Telesavalis of Isa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, what was his name? Maggot in the film. Yeah, maybe I should. Uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, I, um, it was basically there was a, a reorganization internally on the project and. Uh, they went down the corridor, and I was the person that said yes. <laughs> <laughs> you you mentioned uh, the name, the Rosetta mission, and the lander Philly. Um, first off, uh, how did how did the mission and the lander get its name? Who selected the name, and why those names? It's, to me, it's always interesting how these different missions get different names, and I'm wondering how exactly did that mission get those the name, and the lander got the name Philly. Oh, that's a good question, actually. It's it's alluding to the fact that we consider Rosetta the mission. Uh, it's looking at comets. We look at comets as being um, kind of a, a window into the past, a, a window into the origin of the solar system. So, you know, 4.6 thousand million years ago, uh, when the when the solar system first formed, comets are considered to be the leftover debris of that of that process. They're kind of the, the bits left over. So the material we see inside comets uh, or we look at comets for is to get an idea of what the conditions were at the beginning of the solar system, and that gives us a better idea for how the solar system has evolved uh, as we know it today. So the, the, the kind of comparison or the naming came out of the Rosetta Stone and the Philae Obelisk. These were two um, tablets, stone tablets, that had – Egyptian hieroglyphs on them as well as Babylonian text and it allowed uh, Egyptologists to basically crack the code of the hieroglyphs the Egyptian language so in the same way that that was a way of understanding this or breaking the historical language understanding the historical language of the uh, the Egyptians we look at Rosetta the spacecraft as kind of looking at the the, the language of the solar system or uncovering the the, the the mysteries of the solar system okay so I have like a weird question now so just bear with me does it become commonplace for you to just work on stuff that goes into space because i think like your job is basically like i'd just be in awe every day if i had your job like have you just become jaded or or, or is, is it still fun basically and exciting um that's a difficult one actually it's funny because it is is it's exciting but the thing is it's like it becomes like any job i spend my day doing the work uh so it's if there are there are negative aspects, should I say, of because it's it's a difficult mission. It's a difficult thing to do. Space space is a difficult um, area to to explore. And so, yeah, it's in the end. I know it sounds terrible, but it, it's like any other job. You get up in the morning, going, "Oh, right, what have I got to do now?" Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, I have something like three hundred emails per day coming in my uh, inbox to, that I I filter through. There's some, not all of them, are really applicable to me, but I try and keep a, a level of understanding of what's going on in the mission so you're you're doing that you're doing interactions you're trying to um uh, i wouldn't say lobby but you're you're constantly trying to look for 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 the best scenario we have a mission so yeah it, in the end um one one steps back so today for instance i was uh giving a presentation at um a kind of it's a it's the, the transitionary college in the UK. It's a sixth form college. It's where you go from high school, then you do this uh, course, these courses, and then it allows you to go to university. So I was giving a talk to a number of these students who are about between uh, 16 and 18, 
doing those kind of talks reminds you of the bigger picture, the reason why we do this, why we do exploration, why we do science, why it's cool. Uh, but then day to day, you kind of uh, you, you end up distancing yourself from that because you're focusing on all of the digits. You're focusing on the the, the, the and scrutinizing the, the normal day to day stuff. So it's good to do those kind of presentations to talk to you guys on this this kind of interaction as well because it reminds you why you're doing what you're doing as a job, and that then you remember actually what I do is quite cool. Uh, and, and my kids think I'm cool, so that that's all that matters <laughs> now. Anyway, yeah. Uh, well, since since you're mentioning cool stuff, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, I you know, I'm definitely not <laughs> I'm not a rocket scientist or, or or anything like that. But you know, I follow uh, you know news and 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 missions connected to space pretty much daily. And um, it seems to me that there's many space missions these days. You know, involving you know whether it's uh, private, uh, you know, private companies or, or or whatever it is, you know, one of those was, you know, e- e- ESA doing their thing, NASA doing their thing, you know, uh, other other countries getting involved. I mean, is that, um, is it, is it, is it really that it's more and more these space missions that are these, these days, and you can, we can kind of say that it's finally hitting quote unquote mainstream, or and and that it's getting more popular or is that just simply that because of the internet because of all this mass media that we have now the social media everything that people can find out more about it because it seems that there's almost daily things happening now compared to maybe i don't know five ten ten or fifteen years ago well it's certainly a a busy period from from a a, an ESA perspective we have uh, probably a peak in the number of missions that we have running in fact actually it went down by one because we lost venus express but that was already going a lot of our science missions have been going for much longer than expected but i would say yes now is a time where we are really seeing a a good advance in our our space when you say when you say that you're learning like what does that mean learning a lot (laughs) Uh, no, so yeah, my question was like, can you put it in context? Like, I think what Borky was asking, because it seems that now, like, everything's happening in space now. And before there were like three missions in here, and now it feels like there's like 70, right? So like, just from your point of view, does it feel like, the, like the whole, like the whole space exploration is gaining momentum again? Or has it been like this for a while now and like we're just catching up basically? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. In some sense, just you know, to quote Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry, space is the final frontier. So it is the place where we were pioneering in, you know, once we had uh, Sputnik and then we had the, 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 the moon programs, etc. So that was when it was really groundbreaking. We had our first satellites going up. In the talk I gave today, I was talking about Giotto in the 80s, which was when, uh, so that was the Europe's first deep space mission going to comet halley and that was where rosetta was born from as well but at the moment i think it's right that yeah we're seeing a a lot of activity in space but i think ultimately we have to have activity in space it's where uh, we as humans and this is part of this part of the reason why we do these missions at least from the scientific perspective for me these missions are the reason why we are still not in caves sitting there you know looking at our navel kind of thing we 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 are we have a natural idea or a natural want to go and explore and and space really is the next place to go and it offers uh, well i wouldn't say in, in an infinite amount of uh, options but it really is uh, just something that there's something about space that, that that touches a lot of people that you remember for one thing you know we see this with the blue dot and and, and this kind of thing where we really are quite small when we look at the entire universe in the, even in our solar system so i think it's something that's important for everyone to consider at least from a philosophical point of view but i think now we, we're seeing a lot of interest we're seeing more towards the commercial this is this is now building and i, I won't say too much about it because i, I work for the european space agency so i, sh- I shouldn't be really talking about commercial space but that's now what we're seeing we're seeing it's becoming because of the technology that's been developed in previous missions that's what happens you learn you learn from what you've done before and now it's becoming financially viable for commercial vehicles to start working so private companies it's not just the the one of entire countries or groups of countries as we have with uh, ESA it's now something that companies can do it's a commercially viable uh, activity uh 
well, since, since you're touching on that subject, I, I have to ask because um, on the previous podcast uh, we had we had our guest was Angelo Vermeulen, who is uh, uh, working on many uh, interesting international space projects which are connected to space travel. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also on a fourth uh, four month uh, Mars simulation mission yeah, close to uh, uh, Hawaii, uh, close to a volcano in Hawaii. Uh, you know, living um, as if him and his crew were living on Mars. Um, and, and I'm just wondering. I just want to see your perspective. Like how you know how um, how close is the human race to actually uh, boarding on a, on a spaceship and going to Mars? Or, or you know, um, well, Mars would be probably the close. I mean, it's the closest, and it would be yeah, probably the most yeah. made more sense. But still, how far how far how close are we to actually actually doing that? Instead of just talking about it and doing uh, missions and, and trying to simulate it on on Earth. But your perspective on 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 space travel, not just sending. Uh, probes and, and 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 you know satellites and so on and so on into space, but actually saying sending people further away from the moon. Well, this is this is the next step. Obviously, I mean, we it becomes a bit. I mean, I, I met my first astronaut uh, last month, and then you know I spoke to another astronaut the the other the other week as well. And you th- you have to recall that we're actually in space all the time. We've got people up on the ISS. Okay, people maybe become a bit blasé, a bit used to the fact that we're doing this, but it's it's a really difficult thing. And that's the first step. You have to have permanent residence in space to get used to that kind of thing, to get used to how it is to work and and live in space. And then, yeah, then you do it in parts. And that's, that has to be the next step. As I say, it goes back to um, exploration. That's what we want to do as humans, but we start doing it first with robots because that's much, much cheaper for one thing. And it's much less risky. You learn a, a lot of stuff without putting humans at risk. And that's a big problem with space it's a dangerous place we we had this uh, very recently last month there was a possible issue with the iss and all of a sudden all the astronauts were put down one end in, into an escape capsule just in case mm-hmm. something was going to go wrong and i think this happened with the apollo missions you know you watch apollo 13 people seem to be oh you know they, they were on for the next best thing they, they they'd lost interest as it were in in space because it had been done because the moon had been landed on already but it's a massively difficult thing to do for space travel. And then if you're adding human beings as well, they're very soft and, uh, well, we are very soft and, <laughs> and, and there are dangerous things that will hurt us. So it is a massive challenge to do this every time. And we see this. We remember the, the horrible tragedies we've seen with, uh, uh, with, with some of the shuttle uh, flights in, in the last decades. Mm-hmm. And it just it serves as a reminder how brave and, and how heroic uh, our, our astronaut colleagues are for doing what they're doing. They're, they're the groundbreaking ones. They're the ones that pushing the limits to to enable us to go beyond this this planet that we're on now so i see that it's a natural progression it's going to happen it just takes some time to really get a feel for how we can do it what the requirements are but but it's going to happen so do you do you keep tabs on all of that like in your job or is that just basically i don't know uh like i like a hobby <laughs> well it's not to be honest with you i haven't even got time to i don't know read the news at the moment i just concentrate <laughs> on uh on doing rosetta related stuff so I, I i will come across some of these activities i will come across some of the uh some of this by interacting with people but it's not something that i've been uh, keeping tabs on i honestly have been very bad recently in terms of what's going on generally it's just uh, i'm a little bit too immersed in, in the activities i think this is a thing with rosetta people considered last year Year to be the busy period but i knew and many of my colleagues knew that this was the year that was going to be the most busy for all of us because last year it was operationally driven it was to try and characterize the comet to to get the lander down and this year was the time where we were going to be making the science observations doing the science and and that's it and that's really what it is now it's it's 24 7 so it, it, that's how it breaks uh, down like the the mission first you basically have to get there and that's a whole undertaking right and then when you're there, then the science starts? Uh, well, we are doing science in, in the background from what we were doing last year. If you remember, so we had we exited from hibernation. We'd been put in hibernation since June 2011 because we'd gone so far away from the sun. So in January 2014, we came out of hibernation. We were returning towards the sun. We were having we were going to have enough power to power the solar panels, to power the spacecraft. And we did that. And then we rendezvoused with the comet eventually in August. But all of this was a general progression of getting the spacecraft up, learning what the what the comet, the body that we were going to fly around, looked like. If if I recall that only less than a year ago, we still didn't know it had this crazy, strange duck shape that we now are so familiar with. But a year ago now, we still didn't know that. So we were going towards a body. We were going to 
for the first time orbit around something we had never seen up close. We didn't know what it looked like. And then because we're crazy, we were going to deploy a lander as well. If we look at if we look at the moon, we look at Mars. We've done that. We've done landings on these bodies, but we took time. We said we'll send a few lander, uh, send a few orbiters first. We'll observe it from the ground. We'll get a good characterization of what this body looks like. And in principle, they're moons and Mars. It's a it's a spherical planetary object. It's not as difficult as flying around a comet, which is changing its activity in time as well. So it's not a static object. It's a dynamic object. So it was a bit crazy to do those two steps where. Before, with Mars, again, with the Moon and Mars, you send orbiters first and then you deploy a lander. We were doing those two steps in one go and we did it all within a year. Um, and that year began with not knowing what the comet really looked like. We had a rough idea. We thought it looked like a grey potato, but now we know it looks like a black <laughs> duck. Uh, so it, that was a, a massive challenge in terms of operations. And on the back of all of that, we were doing science, of course. That's what was released um, in, the, in last month's uh, science special issue. So we saw the data, the, the data analysis and, and the science that was done while doing these operationally driven uh, observations of course by being an object you're going to do science but they were really the focus was on the, the the operational constraints getting to know how the spacecraft will behave around the comet and also selecting a landing site and that's ultimately what was driven last year and now we're in full science phase which is um, double trouble in fact because we have to plan two um two trajectories we, we're always dual planning we plan for the the set of trajectories and the observations that we really want to do given our best guess or idea of how we think the comet's going to behave and then we also have to plan a backup plan in case that those guesses are wrong and that the comet's so active it pushes the spacecraft away so we're constantly doing this dual planning all the way through this year and it's quite an overhead okay, so like okay make this the, the answer as simple as you can but uh, <laughs> like how many variables are there then because that sounds insane to me. There are a number of variables, and they're driven by the fact that we're flying a, a spacecraft around a comet that we don't really know much about. We know some things about it, but we're driven by the constraints that were planned last year. So so a lot of stuff is is kind of set in concrete already. We're actually talking about setting trajectories all the way through to October this year. And that's problematic when we have only just left bound orbits typically you know these circular what you consider an orbit to be we've left those now because the the, the the gas coming out of the comet is too much to to push and it's pushing the spacecraft away and we do these flybys instead that we've been doing and so that that sets a certain amount of constraints that we can't fly in certain regions in front of the comet we have to make sure that when we do fly by that for instance we have to be twice the escape velocity otherwise if anything goes wrong when we're in the vicinity of the comet if we're not Ad- agreeing or if we're not adhering to that constraint we could deorbit into the into the comet itself so there are all these kind of things that are set up to make sure that the spacecraft is safe the problem is science makes you want to go a little bit over the edge and push the safety margin so we actually want to get closer we want to go slower near the comet but we can't do that with the spacecraft because it's this massive thing with 64 square meters of solar panel which isn't a great thing to have when you've got a lot of dust and gas flowing around so it's constantly a trade between what is risky on the spacecraft side and what is best for science and this is one of the heated discussion that we'll have next week at this science meeting to say what have we learned and what can we change to improve our science uh, capabilities? And so the, to, to list the parameters are infinite because one would say there's the mathematical, the physical constraints, and then you have the, um, the personal constraints as well. And that's actually a major part of my job. So the personalities come in as well. And the science, uh, for example, you can measure dust velocity by using the Osiris camera, the, the science eye of the spacecraft, and you point the spacecraft at 90 degrees to the direction of where the comet is. So that you're 90 degrees to nadir, as we call it. And that's because you want to see the dust flowing past the camera so you can measure its velocity. The same measurement you would use the Giada instrument, which is a dust uh, analyzer, which needs to point Nadir, so 90 degrees different to the camera. So you have these discussions where your constraints for making measurements can be uh, at different ends of the spectrum. So you have to negotiate and come to a compromise between different teams to allow you to do these measurements and make sure that we optimize the science. So it, yeah, it's not only engineering and mathematical and physical parameters, it's also scientific and to some level personal uh, parameters as well. 
Okay, so how how well has the spacecraft held up to like because you said you didn't know well much I guess before it went there, but like have like did you basically plan for most eventualities or you're now stuck with something you basically built and you're making the best of it? How does that work? Well, I, I think in some sense you are you are making the best of it. You you always think in hindsight. Well, well we have this joke that says uh, every time we we see something, we think, well, we'll know better for Rosetta Two, for instance. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but 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 yeah, we we have a very good spacecraft. We have very good instruments, but it's an absolute unknown environment that we flew towards. Well, I wouldn't say absolute. That we have knowledge. We've been observing comets since well before, well for thousands of years actually historically and in space we've had a number of missions going to comets but rosetta is special because it's gone so close and it's staying with a comet so we have a very good idea we had engineering models to allow us to uh, to fix these constraints that you you were talking about and now is the time where we're trying to say well we had this constraint that said we have to maneuver here do we still need that because we were seeing that actually it didn't look like we needed it so when we do future planning can we cut that out of our constraint list and therefore it gives us a bit more flexibility to do to do more maybe it gives us more fuel in the long run so that's happening now we we're basically acting on our knowledge and uh i think i was saying it earlier on where we've just come out of these bound orbits, these classic circular orbits, and now we're doing these flybys, we're seeing different parts of the coma, the outer atmosphere of the comet. We're seeing the day side, whereas before we were in the Terminator, where you're kind of flying in a circle around the, the night to day side, um, you know, the, the line that you draw from, the, from those two differences, the, 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 the plane that's formed between the day side and the night side. We were in orbits there. Now we've actually gone fully on the day side. And this flyby in um, well, last weekend, last Saturday, actually passed across oh, Saturday week. It was Valentine's Day. Uh, passed across the subsolar region, the face of the comet, and it was quite a hairy ride. Uh, there were some things that weren't perfect. The, um, the spacecraft kind of lost its uh, navigation a little bit, but everything was fine. I mean, it, potentially it could have gone into a safe mode, which would have sent the spacecraft about 300 kilometers away from the comet into a safe place. It kind of runs away because it's it has to be autonomous. But as it was flying uh, through or very close to the comet the star trackers these are the the navigation devices that use their software they they can see all the different um, uh, star formations and they have software that tells them where they're pointing if they can't see that properly then they they get a bit worried as you can imagine and so this this is this is this was a potential problem and is always a potential problem when we get closer to the comet where there's more activity there's more dust the pointing goes off we're semi-autonomous basically because uh, signals take about half an hour to get to the comet in one direction so we can't fly this thing by joystick we plan trajectories we assume that we know we'll have a certain error in where we think we're going to be and if that error is greater than we predict the spacecraft will determine itself that it has to get away because it's in danger and then we have to go through a quite a long uh, procedure to try and get back again to analyze why we went there why we had trouble but so far things have gone well i mean yeah, we're, we're still there and we're still doing the science that we plan to do. All right, so, there's so, the lag so, also, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask, um, but before I ask this question, I want to ask something else. Um, so I always thought that the spacecraft, the Rosetta, is now that it's so close to the comet that it's actually being dragged by the comet because of its gravity. So you, are you saying that it, the, the comet's gravity has nothing to do with where, where the spacecraft is flying? So the spacecraft Rosetta is actually maneuvering itself and, and kind of... Uh, you know, orbiting around and following the, the, the comet? Or is there some gravity, um, you know, um, specification, some gravity that, that actually is, is strong enough that is also pulling the spacecraft behind it? Oh, there is there is a gravitational attraction. It's just that the outgassing of the comet is mm-hmm. strong enough to deflect that. So this is the, the point now. We're in these special trajectories that are more... I think they call them hyperbolic. They're like escape trajectories. It's a bit like when we approached the comet last year, we had these very strange triangular uh, trajectories. Now we have square trajectories, not the classic orbit that you, 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 you're familiar with. And, well, by definition, an orbit brings you around to the, roughly the same place. So we were doing that all the way through January, and we had predicted that we would come away from the comet and start these other trajectories because the activity of the comet would overcome the gravitational attraction. So you wouldn't 
wouldn't be able to have this classical uh, two-body interaction. It's there still. Gravity's still there. It's a, you know, it's a fundamental force. But the outgassing of the comet is over, overcomes that attraction. I think um, in terms of escape velocity on the surface of the comet, it's something like uh, 1.7 meters a second. So uh, for, for you as a basketball player, I'm sure you can jump higher than four centimeters on the Earth. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think you can probably jump a lot higher than that. That's probably Maybe you can just about jump four centimeters if I was sitting on your back because uh, I'm quite fat. Uh, but, but, but the point is, uh, four, if you can jump over four centimeters, if you were standing on the comet, you'd be able to leave the comet. You'd, that's, you'd, you'd break this, the, the escape velocity. That's easy for, for any human to do, really. Right. So it just gives you an indication of how small the gravitational attraction is on the, around the comets. And that's what makes it a very weird environment. When you look at, look at the, the, the images we get from the navigation camera, from the Osiris science camera, you look at features and you, you start considering ter- terrestrial analogs, things that you see on, on Earth and think, oh, it looks like this. It looks like a rock. It looks like... But then you have to consider the alien environment that this body is. If you look at the duck shape and you consider where the, um, the back of the duck, as it were, if, if you're sitting on that, what are the, what's the gravitational potential actually doing? In fact, if you consider that the, just looking at the shape, that the center of gravity is probably in the neck. So if you were sat on the back, the gravity would be pulling you technically pulling you towards the center of the uh, of the neck so how does that work i mean this is a simple um you know conception it probably isn't doing that there's probably different uh, gra- uh, gravitational potentials and that's some of the science measurements we're making but this kind of concept of a low gravity weird shaped object wh- how does gravity work how does it interact with the particles that are lifting up how does the sun is the sun charging and we've seen this with the moon the sun charges some of the dust particles and makes them lift off and then what happens you know when we see some of this gas sublimating or pushing off the dust as well so it's just such a, a strange environment that we're flying around and, and um yeah that that's what makes the mission cool i guess so so where exactly in solar system is the comet right now if, if i'm not mistaken it's like if, if you look from the earth's point of view it's on the other side of the sun correct yeah yeah that's basically it it's over there <laughs> <laughs> simple answer yeah, over yeah. there yeah <laughs> I'm pointing up in the sky. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's actually one of the one another constraint actually that we have at the moment. This this conjunction is highly problematic in terms of observation. So uh, we have a lot of ground based support where they look at they're looking for the comet from the ground uh, scientifically, but also operationally. To you know, we can monitor it from the ground. I mean, even in August, there were measurements made made by the European Southern Observatory, and they were measuring the, the comet coma, the outer atmosphere, in the tail to be something like twenty thousand kilometers already so it's a really big entity so as well as not really being able to observe it properly because it's near the sun we also have the problem with data uh, telemetry that it takes some time to uh, or we have a reduced amount of data going through uh, or being able to downlink to the space uh, from the spacecraft okay Um, now if the 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 first part of the mission to say say like that was obviously to to get to the comet this the second one was to land on it Um, the philly lander uh, the mission, which uh, you know, I followed closely, and um, uh, I followed uh, the day that the 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 Philly landed um, successfully, and all the cheers and and everything that you guys were happy. I watched the uh, what was it the the web um, the web trans web transmission and all that. It was it was yeah. really cool to see. I, I mean, you could really get the sense and the feel how uh, much it meant to the people that were involved. Obviously, because this has been a year long process. Um, how did you how did you guys choose the right time and the location of the landing once once you got to the comet how was how was that determined well, I mean, first we had to choose a landing site. That was one of the drivers actually, so we chose landing sites which were then analyzed to see how easy it was he says uh, <laughs> to, to to land and and the problem with this really strange shaped duck is that it didn't have a very there wasn't anything that was perfect so the the landing site we eventually chose on on the head of the duck was the the least worst of all of our options because the 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 body was a very uh had a lot of diverse terrain which we're seeing more and more now that we've got up close to it so that was problematic uh but we had the best option uh with with site j or agilkia and 
the the flight dynamics colleagues both in ESOC and in uh, in, in France analyzed what the best way to, to make the delivery were or how the how the the, the, the comet would uh, or sorry the lander would be deployed best and this was the, the the funny thing where we actually at one point we were talking about deploying from about 10 kilometers maybe even closer but it was shown that actually if we deploy at 23 kilometers we have a much better chance of landing very close to where we're targeting so that's what occurred so all of this calculation was made in this small time period i think we had a meeting first in august then a meeting in late september where we down selected to five landing sites then eventually in october we selected our prime landing site and all during this time period we're analyzing how we're going to do this deployment and that's where we got this uh, approach and, and then finalization to have this um this 23-kilometer uh, deployment distance, and ultimately it was a fantastic achievement that from 23 kilometers away we got within, I think it's 120 meters of, of, of where we've, we aim for. Okay, and the, the, the landing wasn't the, the, the smoothest, to say so, right? The, 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 the lander uh, bounced, bounced back up and moved to a different location, correct? Yeah, it didn't want to land just once. I think this is. <laughs> uh, I mean, we we had ideas that there were some issues with the lander the night before. Um, that the uh, the thruster system didn't look like it was going to behave itself. Um, but nonetheless, we went ahead with the with the lander deployment. And basically, what happened the the, the harpoon system. We had three mechanisms. There were three mechanisms on board the lander to secure it to the the surface of the comet. Uh, because of this low gravity, we have eye screws in the feet of the lander. We had a, 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 a thruster system on the top of the lander to push it down to try and push these uh, screws in, and also to hold the lander in when the uh, harpoons fired. So yeah, we had these three mechanisms that were supposed to secure the, uh, the lander to the comet, but two of them didn't work. Uh, we actually thought, and there was a, and you know, when when we went in, or when I went into the main control room, Stefan Ulamek had, uh, had made the announcement the harpoons had fired, but it was just he was caught up in the moment. Actually, what he was looking at was um, a housekeeping parameter for, I think it's something like uh, a motor which winds the the harpoon back. So. The, the deployment mechanism is such that you fire the harpoons and then you retract the cable until they go tight. Now, the harpoons hadn't fired, but the mechanism to retract the harpoons worked. It was just that uh, it was all that they hadn't been deployed. So it was just kind of, you know, turning a bit tighter on, on the harpoon cables. So that had been registered as, as happening, but not the actual firing. So we had the problem that we weren't uh, effectively fixed to the surface. And we had this little jaunt across the surface of the comet. So ultimately, we had three landings. Uh, we took measurements from all three landings, actually, which is quite good. You know, for me, my heritage is in multi-spacecraft uh, science, so this was a good thing for me. You know, I, I look at it as a positive aspect. In particular, when we look at some of the first observations made by the lander through, well, say, the MUPAS uh, experiment, which is a hammer that, which was tapping into the surface of the uh, comet, that showed a very, very hard surface, uh, subsurface layer. So one could imagine that, if it was as hard as we think, we think it's quite hard. It's a very hard ice-like material. Possibly the harpoons may not have penetrated. So even if they had deployed, we may have ended up in the scenario under Newton's uh, third law that um, the harpoons would have sent us back into orbit. So I look at it as a positive thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine you basically have to do that a lot. Like just roll with the punches. Well, yeah, I think, as I say, a glass is half full uh, in my mind. So that's that's how I look at it, and and that's how, that's how you have to deal with this. You have to look at um, what you the the best part of the situation that you have. In fact, uh, today I was asked a question about you know what happens if something goes wrong on the spacecraft. It's not like the the space station where you can, although it's you know it still costs money and you have to launch things, you can go up and tweak things and fix things like we did with Hubble as well. We could fix Hubble because it's close by. We can't do anything because it's so far away. So we have a robust. System System, but there are things that will go wrong and ultimately we have to take the positives out of this and and, and where we've eventually landed this 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 resting place that the fillet lander is in at the moment is somewhere where we couldn't have dreamed to target to it's really giving us a vision of kind of a 
it looks at a very primordial microscopic um, landscape that we're being able to observe because we have the, the resolution now. Nothing compared to we have on, on, the, on the orbiter, we can get down to something like 11 centimetres. That was the, 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 the scale or the resolution of the images that hopefully we'll see released um, this week from this close flyby from about six kilometres. The resolution of the camera there, six centimetres per pixel, we have images of millimetre scale uh, of the surface. So we are seeing stuff that wasn't as dust-covered as the, the main, the first landing site that we were going to hit. Uh, the, the place that we're in now, we're seeing something, it's a bit like, it's it's pristine. It hasn't got as much dust laying on the top of it. So we see, we're really seeing under the, under the surface, as it were, some of the different morphology that we're seeing on the lar- larger scale, we're seeing in the small scale where we've landed. And, and it's all around us as well. So it's a really great spot to have landed. It's just problematic if you want to come out of hibernation uh, and, and that's what we're waiting for so ultimately the, the, the lander did what it was supposed to do it had three phases it had a separation descent and landing and it had a first science sequence all of this was going to take 60 hours and that's roughly what happened it's just that we had to modify or the land team had to modify what they were operating in case they did something wrong so they had to make had to make a decision about deploying this the uh, the drill at one point so they delayed that until the end of the uh, the, the, the first science sequence because they did didn't want to perturb the the lander too much so they they were slightly changed a lot of the sequences but they still um secured a number of the science objectives that they had and then the lander as designed had to go into hibernation it's just that it's in hibernation longer because it has a it's in a situation where it's, it hasn't got as much illuminations it would have had if it was in the, the center of the landing site so that's what we're waiting for now and we will begin listening for it we have to listen from the orbiter to see if the lander's come back on there's nothing we can do we can we can do nothing from the orbiter the lander is autonomous completely it'll come back when it's good and ready and we'll start listening in in march we'll start you know the year the of the uh, the orbiter we'll, we'll we'll listen out to see if the, the lander has come back or not yeah that was that was going to be my next question uh with the hibernation um that it's that is basically resting and and it's in uh, resting tightly now, and and um, you know you guys are just waiting for it to 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 wake back up and and give new new information, new uh, new updates, which which I know it's it's going to be a very exciting moment once once that happens. Um, how how does it actually work? I mean, is that like a, an alarm in like the the <laughs> the the ESA room that goes off when 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 it's going to come off the hibernation? How does it actually work once that's going to happen? No, it's actually. It, it. I mean, the 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 lander itself will come back if if the power is enough to start a reboot. It goes over a certain level. I think it's it needs about f- over four hours of sunlight um, uh, and a certain level of sunlight, and then it will be able to. It will reboot itself. It will come out of hibernation, and then it will start taking. Me- you know, it will go into a a. a, a um, a transmission to try and get contact with the orbiter, and that's what we're listening for. So once that occurs, then we can start. Re- we'll send command packets up to the orbiter. They'll be sent down to the lander, and that's what we prepare for. So we can do that reasonably quickly. We just have to listen to it first. So it's really, if the power comes to a certain level, the lander will automatically come back into life again and start trying to contact the orbiter to basically say, right, what do you want me to do now? And that's 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 what we're waiting for. We we'll listen for it in May, uh, in March, but um, the, the the part of the comet we think that it's in will be really well illuminated come May time period. But we will still listen out for it now. But in May, it will it'll be highly illuminated compared to the situation that we have now. So you know, you basically will just we'll just keep listening out for it because it's uh, quite a, a tough little uh, tough little lander. It's uh, had a, a, a over kilometers worth of journey across the surface of the comet. So we think. Uh, well, I, I'm certainly looking forward to it coming back. So, what 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 have the highlights, like the scientific highlights, so far been? Like, if you could, like, I don't know, like if can you single some out or? It's a tough one. I mean, I think I think really what's happened. For, we we had a, a special issue of uh, Science Journal um, where we had our first results. Really, to say right, this is the first our first insight into how this comet is, and, and they're important. Not a standalone result, or not only a standalone result, but also they set the tone for the rest of the mission. This is kind of what we saw first, how we considered the comet as we were coming in. And that's important because the, the idea of the mission is for Rosetta to be there for over a year, to observe it go through perihelion, its closest approach to the sun where it becomes its most active, and then 
go away from the sun and become less active again. So this, these results we've had recently really set everything up there. So we've had results that we were expecting. So, well, we, result, we were expected to make the measurements. So, for instance, we had this measurement looking at the different flavors of water or, or uh, deuterium to hydrogen ratios. This is a way of classifying the age of the object in comparison to where it originated from in the solar system. And, and the measurements we made with Rosina of this special flavor of water, you can compare it to other entities in the solar system, in particular the Earth. This is one of the questions that was going around, whether comets were a predominant delivery mechanism of water to the Earth or whether it was asteroids. This is considered very important because at the early stage of the solar system evolution, uh, we believe that the water kind of evaporated off of the uh, surface of the Earth, so something had to bring it back. Previous observations had shown actually that um, comets didn't seem to be the prime prime delivery mechanism, that it was asteroids. But then the Herschel uh, telescope showed for a certain class of comets, these are Jupiter-class comets, the same as Churumov-Gerasimenko that we're looking at with Rosetta, actually had a, this flavor of water very similar to that of Earth. So kind of throwing a spanner in the original idea of, uh, of what was a source mechanism. Uh, the Rosina results were showing actually going back to kind of the pre-Herschel results, showing that the, 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 these Jupiter-class comets seem to have a very high, or at least Churumov-Gerasimenko has a very high deuterium to hydrogen ratio. What that really indicates is that the comet comes from very far away from the sun, from the sun. It had to be formed very far away from the sun, which is good for us in terms of all of the other material that we'll observe on the comet, because it indicates that it's a very primordial and old object. So it's dating from the beginning of the solar system, possibly even predating the solar system. But this was one of the major results to say, hang on a minute, this is really showing us something strange about comets. It's kind of indicating that it's not as easy to classify the differences between the, the we have Oort cloud comets, we have Kuiper belt uh, comets, we have asteroids, we also have main belt comets now, and that the more we look at them, the more we see that they're more like a, a similar species but have different um, evolutionary paths rather than distinctly different uh, animals. The, 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 they may come all from the same family, but they ha have had different paths, and so that's something that one of the, the, the major results. The, the fact that we have you know, just just the, the the shape of the comet itself has been really, I think, uh, one of the most interesting things uh, for, for, for most people, um, and, and what we're seeing there. And for me, I, I'm a scientifically a plasma physicist, so I've never really looked at images. It's not something that I do scientifically. I look at the stuff that you can't see. I look at magnetic fields. I look at um, plasma populations, and so it's been. Um, a change of tack for me to to be able to look at images. I'm, I'm slowly starting to um, appreciate them, <laughs> um, but that's been something that's really, uh, as I was alluding to before, the fact that you've got these very strange features on the surface of the comet. So we, there's a there's a paper that describes the morphology, the the, the features on the comet. And you see these rock-like structures. Then you also see effects that you would uh, see, again, looking at terrestrial analogs, it's a bit like going to the beach, and if you see a boulder on the beach or a rock with sand around it, you see flow around it. You're actually seeing um, the possible evidence of dune-like structures in some regions of the comet, which are indicative of some kind of surface flow, some kind of surface winds, which are very strange at how they would form and why they would do what they're doing. We also see these pit-like structures. They're, they're very... Um, geometric we they're, they're quite circular and they look cylindrical as well and they, they drop down below the surface there are these big crater looking structures which we don't believe are craters at all we reckon we think they're um formed by actual activity of the comet surface so it's something that's not from an impact it's actually to do with the way the comet works and this is again one of the prime things that we want to continue studying one of the probably the, the most important things that we're going to focus on is the fact that from the first observations we saw that the neck region of the comet was quite active now if you look at it you say "Rao, is it two bodies that were stuck together or is it carved out by activity and this is an ongoing discussion as to whether it's a, a binary contact to two bodies stuck together or activity has driven the, the neck to be carved out and that's what we're seeing at the moment in fact there's one region you can see that's eating into another region around the neck and you can you can see where one region looks like it has more surface dust deposits and the other looks more pristine. And we're actually seeing at the interface between those, we're seeing evidence for a different 
uh, spectral nature. So actually, by using this, the, 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 the different filters on the on, on the cameras and also from from the infrared, the neck appears to be slightly different to the other regions. So is that indicative of? Uh, why that region is more active, and that's an ongoing discussion. And in fact, another interesting thing about the neck is that we're starting to we see some cracks forming. So that's a, to be honest with you, an operational worry. I was talking to somebody today in, in in a school presentation that I gave that that would be quite detrimental, in my opinion, for the for the mission if if the comet does split up because uh, mm-hmm. we'd have to fly quite far away from it, and we still haven't done some of the things that I'd like to do in terms of getting close up. But th- these kind of features, these surface features are fantastic, and uh, you know, just just the way we're investigating the coma. I'm trying to, now. I'm talking about all of the science that we've done. I can't pick out single things. It's difficult. Uh, the, the fact that we we're getting an idea of what the comet perfume is like the fact that it's it smells of ammonia it's got sulfur in it it's it's actually a horrible smelling thing if you were there um <laughs> but uh as as some of my colleagues have said it should be okay because there's enough alcohol so i mean the fact that it smells <laughs> it smells and it's alcohol is like a really a good or a bad friday night out depending on what your perspective is uh, so it's you know it's there there's all these kind of things that are just fascinating that you're getting an insight into the material this thing is made of the fact that we found out that it it's a very primordial, very old object. Means that the subsequent observations that we're making will really put put into context what 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 the and where the comet comes from. We we have dust experiments that are starting to give us an idea of how the dust works around the comet. It hasn't got much ice in it, but then there are indications that this is starting to go the other way. That we're having more dense particles come. So maybe what we're seeing is the comet is throwing off its old dusty layer that it's gained since going away from the sun last time, and now. We're seeing the new fresh stuff coming off, and that's that's the thing that these first results set into context. So we see that first, and now the next observations we make by doing these flybys and having this 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 long term plan of fly, of keeping Rosetta by the comet for the next year, we get a better idea of how that evolves, and we'll gradually see this evolution of how the activity works and ultimately how a comet works and that's something that will be unique and we can apply that to all the other missions data that we've ever had and this will be something special for us yeah you you really answered uh the question on so many levels you know some some questions that i had you answered already and it was you answered it perfectly um it's 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 really fun to 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 follow to follow this this mission and, and to find out all the things that you're 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 explaining now. Um, I have one uh, one question, which is um, uh, you mentioned you know the possibility of of um, you know water coming to Earth through comets or asteroids or you know there's different um, different uh, theories about it. But another question I want to ask you is when it comes to life on Earth, um, the the hypo- hypothesis the, of panspermia. I don't know if you, I mean, I'm sure you know it, but I don't know if the listeners yeah. know the, the you know the life. Uh, that life exists through universe uh, distributed through you know meteoroids, asteroids, comets in the form of um, unintended contamination by microorganisms. There's some scientists and some biologists who believe that that's how um, you know Earth, um, uh, how life became, um, you know how life started in Earth, on, on the Earth. Um, do you think in that in future uh, missions we'll be able to to find that, determine that to find that out and are there some future missions that would target that kind of, um, to, to, should I say, information, to look for that kind of information? Um, you know, and, and as I mentioned, the future missions, I mean missions such as Rosetta. Is there another mission in the future that we can expect that would also try to, quote-unquote, hunt down a, a comet and, and land on it and, and gather even more information specifically about, about life in the universe? Well, Rosetta itself will give us some information about that particular question. It's not actually looking at um, having life or organic, uh, you know, living material or, you know, once living material on the comet, but it can look for material that would lead to the creation uh, or, or, you know, basically the building blocks. And we've seen that with comets before. We've seen this with the Stardust mission. That found glycine from the tail of a comet. And so glycine is important because, you know, that's a protein. These are building blocks of DNA. So that's an important thing to be looking at. And that's something and why we're interested in comets because we believe they have through, through the previous observations, and that what that's what we're going there for to see what the building blocks of life are. So not we're not be able to search for life itself, right? 
but we're looking for what could have led to the formation of life and that link to earth and water is also something that's that's relevant here that if comets were able to have delivered water to the earth they could also have delivered these primordial building blocks so things that could then have led to the formation of life so not life itself but something that would seed that to to, to provide you with the, the, the fundamental building blocks and that's something we look for um with Rosetta and we have the, the capability to do that. So what, what, what's planned for the future for the whole mission? And, and where, where does it end? When does the mission end? Yeah. Yeah. When does it end basically? Yeah. When do you guys just say, okay, we're done. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, that's a good question. Uh, it's about money. We're currently funded until the end of this year. That's when, when we'd uh, plan to end it. But with the fuel that we see on board, about 50% of the launch mass. Uh, so we launched about three tons, uh, about 1600 kilos of that was fuel. We've got quite a bit left now, uh, enough to do the stuff that we wanted to do this year and to go into next year. So we're writing a scientific proposal to ask to be extended into next year. Uh, and that's ongoing at the moment. The The limitation other than fuel is the fact that we move further away from the sun. So we go into a situation where we have low power. Now, we could go into hibernation again. That's one option. But then we'd have to you know, run the mission even longer going into another apparition. But then we'd have hardly any fuel left. So we, we were kind of having this discussion recently. And one of the, my favorite ideas is to actually use everything next year so basically say right any fuel we have left we're going to do some more extravagant things maybe take a few more risks with the spacecraft but ultimately we'll have an end of mission scenario that gradually approaches the rosetta orbiter to the comet to lower and lower altitudes until ultimately we put the rosetta orbiter onto the surface of the comet as well we basically deorbit rosetta onto the comet oh okay okay which I guess then you'll get even greater detail. I mean, it does land or does it crash? It's, I think it's more of a, it's, it's, it's not a land. It is a, it's going to be a crash. Although I think somebody was jokingly saying about whether we could try and land it and still communicate, but ultimately it's an orbiter. It's not designed to, hit, uh, to, to be on the, on the surface. The scientific game though is to get as close and uh, as possible to really get the high resolution images, but get a feel for how that, um, that, that coma, or what the outer atmosphere of the comet is like at those low altitudes to, to really get the the best that we can uh, as best possible uh, during that time period and also i think um rosette has been described as something somewhat of a soap opera uh, in terms of how it's uh, attracting people and, and and always has some adventure you know whether it's the hibernation exit the, the the rendezvous itself or even the landing which is quite an extravagant week uh, i think when we go through perihelion we're going to have some exciting times we're going to see a very active comet uh, in august and september this year but then following that it's a fitting finale for such an exciting mission to to, to put it to rest and to have uh, both the fillet and Rosetta sat on the comet for, for, for maybe eternity or as long as the comet uh, orbits the sun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, quite an epic ending. I would yeah. Say. Yeah. Um, th- I really have to apologize. I have to ask you a question that I should have asked right at the beginning. And I apologize for that. Um, can you just maybe really quickly explain how the trip to Comet looked like, because it was it was years long. It, you know, you had to circle the Earth a couple of times first, then Mars, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. and so on and so on. Um, just, just for the people, so they, they won't think that, okay, the rocket took off from Earth and you caught a, a Comet uh, a day or two uh, yeah. flying <laughs> flying through the universe. Just, just real quick. Yeah, um, one of the biggest challenges for Rosetta or for any cometary mission is to actually catch a comet, and that was the one of the... Uh, the difficult things uh, one of your limitations for space travel is to get enough mass off of the surface of the earth uh, and and get enough fuel to do what you want to do so even though we had three tons of spacecraft and fuel it still wasn't enough to get us out to the comet the comet goes out to the jupiter uh, to the jupiter orbit so we had to use the gravity of the earth and mars over 10 years we were flying around and orbiting the, the solar system we used the earth three times to slingshot us out towards the orbit of the comet and also around mars Mars as well, and that brought us out to the orbit of the comet. So by June uh, 2011, we were able to be uh, on our way towards um, the outer parts of the comet's orbit and catching up with it. Basically, on 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 that journey as well, we were able to make observations of two asteroids as well. So, as well as making observations of the Earth, the Earth's magnetosphere, Mars, and its local environment and its surface, we were able to do uh, to characterize uh, asteroid Steins and asteroid Lutetia as well. So we did all of that in the 
the decade it took us to get to the comet. So it's a, it's a long journey and, and took a lot of planning. And it's fantastic when one considers that somebody designed it to do that over 10 years ago. And it, and it got within a few thousand kilometers of its target when we came out of hibernation. So it was pretty good shooting, a little bit like the landing as well. That was uh, from 23 kilometers, 120 meters away from the target. So those guys uh, that work the, do these calculations uh, do a pretty good job and show you that <laughs> math is actually quite useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Matt, thanks, thanks for all this information. Uh, I mean, it's it's amazing, really, talking to you. Um, b- before we let you go, I have to ask you: When, when are you getting the new new tattoo? Uh, you're obviously, you're a huge fan of tattoos. Uh, I, I am as well, but I'm not nearly as close uh, to where you are when it comes to number of tattoos. Um, well, give give us an update. When is the next one coming? Um, well, I was going to have one today, actually, but I had a. <laughs> No, yeah, I, I was supposed to see my tattooist today, but I had a double booking. I, instead of having a tattoo, I went to give a talk on Rosetta at college. So um, maybe in, in, maybe I'll catch up with um, Prizeman, my tattooist, in the next month or so and embark on a new one. We're not decided yet what it will be. Um, but, yeah, so I've, I've finished my arms now. Now I have to go on to other parts of my body. <laughs> well, you, you, do have, you do have a Philly Lander tattoo on your leg, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's. I thought that was that was really cool. Um, how, how does how does the the the, the whole uh, com, community of scientists look at you with, with all the tattoos and stuff? I mean, personally, oh. please don't get me wrong, because I you know I have I have no judgment at all. And even with the the shirt controversy that came out, I was completely on your side. I'm sure that people who know about it and who are listening to this that maybe know about this were, are, are feeling the same way. And we don't have to get into this at all. Um, but how how does how does that feel? Do you get a lot of strange looks because of your uh, rock star uh, appearance <laughs> well, <laughs> or, i don't know or... if it's rock star but no, I, <laughs> I i well i've been on rosetta only two years i think i described this earlier on so mm-hmm. when i arrived on rosetta i was very forthright and frank with everyone because it was a new a newish community there were still people i knew from the plasma community who work on rosetta and they knew me from the cluster mission and i have a cluster mission tattoo i'd had that for quite a few years and people knew me in the cluster community for having a tattoo and it's or a few tattoos and it's just something <laughs> that, that that is that is me i've something that i learned early on that it was more about what you did than what you looked like although there is a time and a place for wearing suits and ties and that's what i do there are times to, to be formal but there are also times to be excited and and bright and positive about things and 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 try to show this is what I try and say to, 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 to kids that I talk to, to students, that you don't have to look like a particular way. You can be yourself. Uh, you don't have to look like a typical person uh, because it shouldn't be about that. It should be about what you do uh, rather than what you look like. But for when I moved to, to, to Rosetta, because I had a cluster tattoo, I kind of showed them, you know, I didn't get undressed in front of everyone, but I, I gave a presentation and said, if, 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 uh, Rosetta comes out of hibernation I'll get a Rosetta tattoo so I vowed to do it and therefore I had to do it ultimately and that's why I had the Rosetta tattoo to demonstrate to everyone that I was committed to the mission um, and um, you know ultimately now I can say in hindsight that it was a very good prediction on my leg but um, <laughs> you know it's it's just it's just you know I, I just like tattoos I like the artwork I have a very good tattoo artist so it's something that uh, is my my personal life but happens to be something you can see day to day because it's on my skin um, so, so yeah so, i like the artwork well when you when you mentioned the t- tattoo artist is someone that's someone you can recommend if i'm ever in london and i want to get a get something done yeah 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 certainly i mean he he does all of my tattoos i've known him since i was 17 so he's, he's uh, my oldest friend uh, my oldest school friend so it's uh, definitely somebody to look out i mean you can you can google the rosetta tattoo you'll see the uh, the, the the youtube video of me getting it done and uh, you get <laughs> All the details there of, uh, yeah, so you get, uh, I think it's something like two minutes uh, of tattooing that actually took probably about four and a half hours at, um, at Prizeman Studio in Chelmsford. So it's about half an hour outside of London. But uh, it's, uh, it's a good place to go to for uh, a particular style of uh, tattoo art. But, you know, I like it and uh, I can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know how it is. I know what you're saying. I mean, like I said, I'm not, I'm not, not close to you. I have four tattoos myself, but... It's like once you get it started, then then it's like oh, I want to get next one, next one, next one. So, 
uh, I, I completely get what you're saying. Yeah, Andre is not there yet. He's still he's still a virgin. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I'll he comes what, to tattooing, it, it bloody hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the problem yeah. now. Now I'm getting old. It starts to hurt a little bit. I found it hurts a little bit more than it did the last time. So, but then, like you say, it's, it's addictive. So I think I, I've got my sleeves done now. And I was talking to uh, Prizeman, and he said, "Well, now 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 your chest looks really. You look naked on your chest. So now we have to do that." And so yeah, that's what happens. You end up. Uh, there it goes. Fully colored. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, Matt, I, I am, can't thank you enough for taking your time and for this conversation. Yeah, it's, thank you. Uh, it's, been, it's been a really long time that we wanted to put this together and uh, finally it's here. Um, actually, your, your name came up with, with uh, some of our listeners who really asked me to contact you and, and, and get you on. And I jumped right on it and uh, it's, it's, it's been great. And thank you for all this information and everything you shared. I'm sure a lot of people are going to enjoy this conversation and share it uh, on and on. And this is what it's all about, to share this information, to let people know what you're doing. Doing, what what ESA is doing with the mission and and to, like you said at the beginning, this is an important thing. You know, looking up in the space and 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 trying to to, to ultimately get there. That's that's what it's all about. So mm-hmm. thanks a lot for what you're doing and thanks a lot for this conversation. Well, thank you for what you're doing as well. I mean, it's 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 really important to 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 send that message to to have that kind of interest to to keep this kind of uh, conversations going to 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 feed people's interests. So that that's that's what it's all about. And uh, I appreciate your time as well and and your efforts to try and grab me as well you're persistent but also very patient and i really appreciate that so it's really good and i'm very happy to have done this now finally because we've just never been out we were kind of out of sync and out of phase with time so it's worked out really well this time so i'm happy to you know try and catch up again uh if we can do it so we'd love to do it we'd love to do it definitely stay in touch man that's uh we'd love to do it appreciate it yeah thank you so much thank you so much thanks matt yeah yeah nice guys have a good one thank you all right bye-bye bye So this was Matt Taylor, a super interesting conversation. Uh, you know, it was, it was great to hear all the things uh, that he said and that he uh, explained to us regarding the Rosetta mission. Uh, learned a lot. Uh, Andre, I'm sure you like the conversation also. Yeah, very informative. <laughs> very, very informative. And, um, you know, I really feel lucky that we, we were able to get him um, on a podcast. I know his schedule is extremely busy. Um, those of you who follow him on Twitter or will follow him on Twitter, um, he is, uh, he's one of the, um, probably most busiest people right now, you know, since, since all these things are happening and, um, you know, he's constantly, um, either working on the, uh, on the project or talking to people or having, um, uh, traveling around and, and doing different things and, uh, a very interesting person. I mean, definitely not a scientist, uh, uh, that somebody would imagine, uh, you know, he's a different kind of dude, different kind of guy, uh, but, uh, but very open and, uh. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy talking to him a lot. I'm sure in the future, if we get a chance, we'll try to get him back and, and get an update from the, from the mission. Uh, that would be great. Uh, for those of you who do want to follow him, he's on Twitter. He's at MGGT Taylor. Um, so, uh, if you guys are listening to this, uh, give him a shout out. I'm sure he's gonna, uh, he's gonna be happy about it. He, he usually responds to the people that, that write him. I was one of them. That's how we got it all started. So, uh, that's that's pretty cool that he's he's open like that. Uh, Andre, anything else that we need to mention? Uh, well, uh, the podcast is uh, uh, on the website, theditaspodcast.com, and we're also in iTunes, so if you can leave a review there, that'd be awesome. And that's pretty much it, I think. Yeah, thanks for all of you who are listening, who are sharing the podcast, who are leaving reviews um, on iTunes and so on and so on. We really appreciate it, and um, you know we'll... We'll, we'll talk to you guys the next time that we have a guest on, uh, probably in a month or so. Um, Andre, on Twitter? Uh, I'm AtomicXX, and you are? Bokinagbar. And uh, that's it. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>